Good afternoon, this is your captain speaking with just a little flight information. We're flying at an altitude of 37,000 feet and our airspeed is 400 miles an hour. A couple little facts here, I'm packing a Colt King Cobra, that's a 357 caliber firearm with a black rubber grip and a six inch barrel, capable of piercing body armor at a distance of up to 27 feet. And I can put a hole in human bone and flesh the size of the Grand Canyon, which, by the way, is coming up on the left-hand side of the plane. So just sit back and relax and enjoy the rest of the flight. No, not you, not you. Your organization's terrible. Should I tell you? Should I tell you? Oh, you Boy Scouts, but you know life, you know life. You know I'm totally off script right now. Hey, News Dive listeners, it's Sam Carliner, and I am really excited to be joined by journalist Ben Norton, who is assistant editor at The Gray Zone and producer of the Moderate Rebels podcast. And we're going to be talking about uh, what we talk about on the show a lot, censorship, uh, as it gets more concerning. Ben, thank you for taking the time to be on the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to have as many uh, as many anti-censorship conversations as possible because not that this is new, but the threat is certainly seems to be ramping up and more has happened since I reached out to you um, that I'd love to talk about. But I think to start, uh, I really appreciated your article in the Gray Zone about Richard Stengel. And I was hoping you could talk about some of the red flags that this guy gives off for what censorship may look like under a Biden administration. Absolutely. Well, I'll first begin off by saying that, unfortunately, when we look at the the new wave of censorship campaigns in the United States, it's largely politically motivated censorship, and it's pretty explicitly so. You know, during the war on terror, in the Bush era, there was this kind of fig leaf. I mean, it was always hypocritical, but there was this idea that that if you have, say certain things, if you publish certain information, it's a threat to national security. So we saw a massive increase in censorship of the media and many mainstream media outlets played along willingly with that censorship. So James Risen, who is a former New York Times reporter and currently a columnist at The Intercept, he published a very interesting article looking at the history of blatant censorship that went on under the Bush era. So I go back to the Bush era because I think that in order to understand this moment that we're in right now, we can understand what the character is of the censorship. And I want to stress it again, it's politically motivated censorship. Now, what has shifted since the Bush era is that it was then it was largely kind of neoconservative Republicans who were making these arguments that we have to censor certain speech and when I say speech, I mean that broadly, not just in terms of what people are saying, but even more importantly, I would argue news articles, journalism, reporting, that it has to be censored because of national security. Well, now I would argue that we've seen kind of a flip and it's actually largely Democrats and it's, it's people who share very similar kind of neoconservative, very hawkish politics who are making these arguments. And it's actually largely the Democratic Party now. And this is not to say that the Republican Party doesn't have free speech warriors who, or I guess that's free speech warriors should be the opposite, rather info warriors who are arguing for censorship. There certainly are some figures in the Republican Party, the kind of more neoconservative Marco Rubio wing, who are making those kinds of arguments. But as you alluded to, 
in, in a piece I published at the Gray Zone, I look at some of the figures who are in the, the transition team of President-elect Joe Biden, and it's quite clear that they have this very hawkish worldview, and they also see themselves as information warriors in the new Cold War. And this is, you know, this, this language might sound hyperbolic, but it's, it's really not. I, if you look at specifically at what some of the political scientists, the sociologists, the political so-called intellectuals and pundits who are writing about this ostensible problem, this supposed problem of disinformation that requires a crackdown on free speech, it's figures who, some of whom have acknowledged that the United States is in a new Cold War, not only against Russia, which is pretty clear with the Democratic Party's obsession with the Kremlin, but also with China. And that's pretty clear with the Republican Party's obsession with Beijing, although I would argue that this is really a bipartisan phenomenon. So specifically, to have more concrete examples, you can look to the New York Times that published an op-ed by Neil Ferguson, who is a right-wing conservative historian at Harvard. He is one of the most important figures in the kind of new conservative movement, not neoconservative, but kind of new, like younger generation of conservatives. But he actually, he's British and he's a British conservative, which means that he's actually kind of more democratic leaning than Republican because the US is so much more to the right than Europe. And Neil Ferguson published an op-ed in the New York Times, which is of course, everyone knows the New York Times kind of leans Democrat. And in this op-ed, he said explicitly, we're, we're in a new Cold War with China, and it's time to admit it. We've also seen that a close ally of Donald Trump in Hong Kong, who is a media magnet, Jimmy Lai, who's been, he's often referred to in the media as the Rupert Murdoch of Asia. He's a Hong Kong billionaire and media magnate. He has repeatedly said in interviews on CNN that there is a new Cold War going on led by the United States on one side and its allies against China on the other side. So the reason I, I provide all of that context there is because I, I would argue that it's pretty uncontroversial. There are many figures outside the U.S. government and inside the U.S. government. People like Mike Pompeo, who gave this historic speech at the Richard Nixon Library, presidential library, in which he all but openly called for a new Cold War on China. I would say that this is uncontroversial. So we have to understand that the censorship that's going on now has shifted. I mentioned the Bush era. Under the Bush era, the censorship was being done in the name of national security and the war on terror, right? Well, now it's being done in the name of combating foreign disinformation as part of the new Cold War. And, and as to stress this point again, it's actually not Republicans who are leading the charge, even though there are some Republicans who are certainly on board. It's the Democratic Party, and it's people who are going to be in a Joe Biden administration. So you mentioned Richard Stengel. Just to summarize this piece, and then I'll pitch it back to you. I'll you know, give you the mic back in a second. Well, Richard Stengel was the longest-serving undersecretary of state for public affairs, for in the history of the, the State Department, but he, he served under the Barack Obama administration. And this is a guy who has referred to himself kind of tongue in cheek, jokingly, but also in a serious way, he said that he was the chief propagandist for the US government under Barack Obama. He has also repeatedly said that he wants to quote, rethink the First Amendment. 
He said that in a speech that he gave in 2018 at the Council on Foreign Relations. He also said that in an op-ed he wrote calling for rethinking U.S. free speech laws. And what, what is the reasoning? Well, his reasoning is that the United States is in a new Cold War on Russia, and he, in the Barack Obama administration, his goal was to combat what he called foreign disinformation, specifically targeting Russia. And in the Barack Obama administration, he created an institution called the Center for Global Engagement. Now, that term sounds nice and, and benevolent, humanitarian. Global engagement, we're going to engage the globe. Well, in what way is Washington going to engage the globe? You can just look at the way they talk about it. It's, it's an information war. Richard Stengel, the founder of this institution, wrote a book called Information Wars, in which he argues that the United States is in an information war, which is part of this larger new Cold War with Russia and also China, and that in this information war, we cannot allow complete freedom of speech and freedom of press because these foreign boogeymen are going to exploit our hard-earned freedoms and use it to challenge our national security. So they're still framing it in this kind of narrow sense of national security, but the boogeymen have changed from these terror groups, non-state terror groups like Al-Qaeda, to the great power the, the great power rivalry, that's the term used by the Pentagon more and more. In fact, great power rivalry has become so common that it's actually become an acronym used by the Department of Defense in its documents, GPR, great power rivalry. So that's the kind of positioning, I think, to understand the context of, of where we are right now. And Richard Stengel, who is the head of state media for the Biden-Harris transition team, overseeing the U.S. Agency for Global Media, which is the U.S. government's state media arm. It's, it's effectively a propaganda arm with its, with its origins in the Cold War. He has said explicitly that propaganda should be used not only against foreigners, but against the U.S. public. That the U.S. taxpayers who pay for the government, who pay for these state media apparatuses, they should be targeted by that very same propaganda. He said that quite explicitly. So I, I think that going forward, we have that's the context that we have to understand. We're in effectively a new Cold War. We're in what top Biden transition team administrations call an information war, and they see the First Amendment as collateral damage of that new war. I mean, there's a lot to touch on there. I think I want to start by just that what really stands out to me is I think the hypocrisy of it, that at least some of the sentiments I've been seeing as to why we supposedly should be so scared of, of Russia, of China, is that these are places that are authoritarian, that censor their media, and, and somehow the idea is to do the exact thing that justifies uh, opposing these countries in order to fight them. I, I think it's ridiculous, but uh, unfortunately, that's not the sentiment among a lot of people. And uh, I mean, obviously, people in power will be justifying this, but even just the, the average American, maybe not the average American, but a lot of average Americans seem to genuinely think this is justified. What would you say is, is the reason that this has so, uh, and I know this may be too broad of a, a thing to answer quickly, but do you think there, what do you think has caused such a embrace for these types of policies that I, I like to think a while ago would never have been so cheered on, particularly among maybe more left-leaning Americans? 
Well, that's a really good question. And I'm glad you kind of framed it in the hypocrisy because I would argue that this hypocrisy, of course, isn't new. The difference is the target. So the reason I began this conversation talking about the war on terror is because that's really the moment when U.S. civil liberties just faced a full frontal assault. And I'm not saying that the U.S. has a, a long, great history with civil liberties. Certainly, there are so many horrific examples throughout American history. You know, you can talk about Jim Crow. You can talk about mass internment camps for Japanese Americans. You can talk about the attacks on labor unions and the rights of people to organize, all of these things. The attacks on independent media also are not new. But I think when you go, when you look at the Bush era after 9-11, that's really the moment when this sacrosanct notion of free speech and freedom of the press was for the first time in kind of mainstream political circles challenged. Before that, I think in, one of the few good things about American politics is that freedom of speech was very highly valued. But you know, there's this, there's this famous Nietzsche quote, beware that when you're fighting monsters that you don't become one, that you don't become a monster yourself. And, and that's part of the larger quote people have probably heard that when you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes into you. So during the war on terror, the U.S. had this, this idea that there's these terrorists under, under your bed. So we basically have to become terrorists to, to fight them. You have to become the monster that you're fighting. And and it's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. And, and of course, you can say it's cynical. I would argue it's pretty objectively cynical. I mean, terror is such an ambiguous concept. But, but now that the enemy, the so-called enemy, official enemy in scare quotes, are these more concrete boogeymen of Russia and China, I would argue that, that they actually don't pose a threat to American workers and average people. They only challenge... American elites and their control over the world, which is why they want want us to fear these countries, just like in World War One. You know, the the horrors of World War Two and fascism really changed people's vision and their perspective on World War One. But World War One was a pointless inter-imperialist war between all these imperial powers that were fighting to to carve up the world. And and the U.S. is resorting to the same kind of boogeyman tactics now to make us fear all of these foreign countries. And and. And the point you pointed out is really important when we want to push back against that, that kind of new McCarthyism and new kind of World War I jingoism. And, and that's the notion that, well, we have to fight these countries because they're authoritarian and they don't have freedom of the speech. So in order to do that, we have to take away freedom of the speech and we have to be authoritarian as well. And, and just pointing out that hypocrisy, I think, goes a long way to bursting that bubble of propaganda. But, you know, getting back to your question about how do you talk about this with average people, with voters, with non-voters, I think it, it just has to be understood again that we, we can see very clearly that we have two political parties that don't represent average people. We have two political parties that represent the people who fund them. That shouldn't be a controversial position. We saw, for instance, Bernie Sanders, who ran on a platform of extremely popular policies that even many Republicans support. Around two-thirds of Americans support universal health care through a Medicare for All style system, including many Republicans. So the fact that that's not even on the table, the fact that, that basically all of their Democratic Party candidates and the Democratic Party leadership, excluding Bernie Sanders, they all opposed that system. The fact that free universal higher education is extremely popular among all political groups. These are, these are things that 
neither political party is calling for because, you know, these are undemocratic parties. And, and I think increasingly that we're going to see that same shift to happen with ideas around free speech and the First Amendment and say that, well, we have to curtail people's basic free speech rights because we're, we're at war. And, and that needs to be understood as further attacks on the, 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 the very few remaining elements of democracy in, in the U.S. as this country becomes more authoritarian. And, 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 it's, and as another example, you know, I was saying this earlier about how it's largely being driven by Democrats, but there are these neoconservative Republicans who say it openly. And, and I think of a tweet recently by Tom Cotton, who is one of the most hawkish members of the Republican Party, extremely pro-war. And Tom Cotton tweeted, he said, the First Amendment only applies to freedom of religion. So we're, we're actively seeing people who are not only fringe elected figures in, in some you know, rural area that no one really knows about. Now, these are, these are major leaders of mainstream political parties. Tom Cotton is a, is a major figure in the Republican Party, and he's openly saying that we need to redefine the First Amendment, and it does not guarantee freedom of, the spree, freedom of speech, freedom of press, and freedom of assembly. It only guarantees freedom of religion. So that, that really needs to be framed as an authoritarian attack on the very few elements of democracy that we even have in the United States. And I think average people really, really would be concerned when it's framed in that way and not, not culture war, right? Because unfortunately, the reality is that, especially by Republicans and also Democrats to an extent, when they do talk about free speech, it's always framed as the endless culture war. It's about whatever culture issue it, it, we're ta they're talking about today, whether that be, you know, like, some movie and like some speech and like uh, some, I, I don't know, whatever, like Miley Yiannopoulos or whatever, like, or trans, like people who want to discriminate against trans people. And they, they always, they, they always make it about cultural issues and not the fundamental question. And the, for me, the fundamental question is much bigger than any of the culture war arguments and social justice warriors, blah, 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 all that. The fundamental question for me is, do, does the government have the right to prevent media outlets from publishing information that it doesn't like? And then also an equally important question, do private corporations have the right to censor political material because it's, it supposedly is, is not sensitive or whatever? And, and I think that those are really dangerous questions. And the latter in its particular, I mean, we, and we can talk more about this, the, the the right of private corporations to censor political views they don't like, that has, has become extremely mainstream. I think we're seeing a lot of that with social media. I, I mean, literally, just, just earlier today, uh, it was Mint Press News uh, had their account suspended. I know the gray zone has had its own cases of censorship. I, I mean, I feel like at this point, most independent outlets have been somewhat harmed by these how social media accounts run their business and i think what's so ridiculous for me at least is that the government both plays as if they're concerned about social media while directly benefiting from a lot of the decisions these these businesses make and i think it raises the question is is there some way that we can both 
correct this issue of, of social media accounts censoring political opinions that they don't like without putting too much power in the government to censor political opinions that they don't like. Like, like where, where, where do we deal with this issue when the two are so closely connected? Well, I'm glad you said they're connected because the fact that they're connected, which is clear to so many people, that dispels this myth that, oh, if a private corporation that runs one of these social media platforms censors someone, that's not violating the First Amendment because it's not the government. It's supposedly a private company. But that misunderstands the very close revolving door between these big tech corporations and the government. Basically, all of these Silicon Valley corporations are U.S. government contractors in the first place. So I would argue that they're kind of de facto outsourced government institutions. That's very clear, especially with Google. Google has military police intelligence contracts with so many government agencies, including the CIA, the military, local police agencies, local police departments across the country. But it's also true to an extent with Facebook, which works very closely with the FBI and censorship and censorship that works very closely with other U.S. government institutions. Facebook it has also worked with U.S. government-backed institutions to, as so-called independent fact-checkers to censor. So we've seen, for instance, that the Atlantic Council, which is a very powerful think tank in Washington, funded by the U.S. government, also funded by the British government, the arms industry, the United Arab Emirates, and which is certainly a bastion of free speech. I mean, it's authoritarian, absolute monarchy in the Middle East. But I mean, the hypocrisy is just is just unimaginable. But the fact that this U.S. government funded institution is being used by Facebook to censor information that it deems to be counterfactual, that I think is yet another example of the very close overlap, the very thin line between the government and these social media institutions. So the idea that if Twitter is censoring someone that doesn't violate our free speech rights because it's a private corporation is clearly ridiculous. And, and then there's another argument you can make that even aside from its close ties to different governments, there's also the fact that these are basically kind of public utilities. In the 21st century, social media is not really an option. It's pretty much obligatory, especially for a lot of people's work. You know, I work in media, it's obligatory. But if you're a politician, how do you communicate with people? How do you communicate with your constituents, with the public, with the media? You do it through social media. You do it through your Twitter account in particular. You know, Donald Trump's tweets. And, and we saw this big debate about whether or not Twitter should censor Donald Trump because he has so many times so clearly violated its own terms and conditions. Twitter never suspended him, of course, because he's the president, because there is a de facto recognition that these private companies are running social media platforms that are essentially public utilities. So I think they should be understand, understood as public utilities, just as we understand the internet and cable and water and electricity to be public utilities. Now, in the United States, which is a very right-wing country, these are mostly privatized, but they're still utilities. The idea that, that people don't have the right to electricity and water I mean, people, if you say that, people would laugh at you. I mean, maybe there's some very extreme right-wingers, right, some right-wing libertarians who, who believe that. But most people agree that people should have access to housing and water and electricity. And I think that the Internet and social media are increasingly part of that, especially in this moment now of the COVID pandemic, where so many people work on the Internet. 
and they have to use social media platforms and the internet and other websites to communicate with their coworkers and to do their job. It should be seen as a public right. So this finally gets back to the question you raised about the, the role of the government in censorship. Now, it's a very difficult question. I, I acknowledge that, that it's not black and white. And I acknowledge that, you know, I, I definitely, when it, as a journalist, I definitely err on the side of very, very open understandings of freedom of the press. And in very few circumstances would I agree in censoring information. And I think that really it only can come down to when it's a kind of concrete example of threat endangering someone, threatening their safety. But th that is a very slippery slope, of course, and I think we should err on the side of being less cautious and a little more, you know, a little more, a little less careful. I mean, frankly, because it's so easy for this idea of, of endangering someone's safety to be used just to justify censorship. And more and more, you know, Twitter took this kind of more libertarian view on free speech, which I think was the correct position. But it was pressured so much largely by these kind of Democratic Party institutions and liberal forces that said that it's threatening people by allowing trolls and allowing people to dox people and post their public information, their private information. Now, I think doxing is very different from this ambiguous idea of trolling. Now, if someone is sharing your private information and your address and, and that kind of thing, I, I think that that's one of the few areas where we should have a conversation about, you know, how we can protect people's information. But it's gotten to such a ridiculous degree now on Twitter where people are insulting someone and they get suspended for saying that they're endangering that person. I mean, that is just so patently ridiculous and it's act asking to be exploited. So the point is that I recognize that there's not an easy solution to all of these, but it's just so clear that the slippery slope, we've been going down that for a very long time now. And, and, and the government, I mean, it's inevitable that every government is always going to have some element of censorship just because of that, the protection element I was talking about. But, but the degree to which the U.S. government has just, and these intelligence agencies, especially the FBI, have begun using the idea of national security and threats to people's security and safety to justify censorship, it's just gotten to such a ridiculous, egregious level that I don't think any rational person can defend it. And there needs to be a mainstream political discussion about this among, you know, not just those of us who are independent journalists, but it needs to be something that, that does happen on the congressional floor, of the floor of the House, the floor of the Senate. And thus far, I have to say, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not a sympathizer with the Republican Party, which also, by the way, for many decades was the opposite of a defender of free speech. It was actually the Republican Party that was going against free speech. But the reality is that in the past few years, it's really only been Republican members of Congress who have even broached this issue of corporate censorship and government censorship of free speech. Well, yeah, I mean, it was I just yesterday or a few days ago, I think yesterday that uh, Obama was getting a lot of criticism for saying that the internet is is the single biggest threat to democracy. Uh, I know there was the Senate hearing. Uh, I haven't had an opportunity to watch that yet, but I, I heard Cory Booker, who is my senator, was especially bad. So I, I think I think you have a point, and that's also a very heated issue 
right now in a lot of political spaces of people not willing to work with conservatives because of their history, even if maybe they're more leaning in favor of, of opposing censorship. Th there's a real discussion right now over where you draw the line on working with people, on what issues you work with them on, where you make, basically where you draw the line. And I think that varies for everyone and, and uh, again, to add to the very, very broad questions, I'm curious as to if, if we are to start setting, as it appears to be, rules of where we draw the line, where we work with people, uh, what do you think that could look like in the future in terms of partnering with uh, maybe conservatives or not necessarily conservatives, but people who may not align with our politics, but who are useful allies in fighting censorship? Well, I think we have to problematize the whole idea of working with. You know, this is thrown around a lot so much, often by people who are, of course, defending censorship and who are doing it, I would argue, in a cynical way. They're saying, well, you're, you're allying with the right wing, with these racists, with all... And we're, no one is... Very few people are allying with them. That's absurd. The idea that that a progressive person is allying with the right because they both agree on a certain thing, that's obnoxious. I mean, if, if that's their actual argument, then you could say that basically the Democratic Party allies with the Republican Party on 95% of issues, that they're allies on almost everything, which a lot of people would laugh at the idea because they're always at each other's throats. No, just because a liberal or progressive-minded person agrees with a certain idea and a, and a conservative agrees with that same idea it doesn't mean that they're political allies. It means that they just agree on this one particular policy or issue and they can both, they can work independently but in, in support of the same issue. Like, I don't see anyone, I think this is a really a red herring because we see like these kind of neoliberal Democrats arguing for censorship who are saying that like the left is allying with Trump Republicans on this issue. And it's like, no, I haven't really seen anyone actually allying with in some way. It's, it's not like they're part of the same organization. In fact, they're, they're, one of the reasons it's, it's beneficial that they agree on that issue is because they're from polar opposite different groups, different organizations and institutions. So I, I think we have to just reframe that whole argument because it just seems so cynical and disingenuous to me. And, and not, we can also flip it on the side and say, look, a lot of these neoliberal Democrats who consider themselves maybe woke or progressive or whatever, but I would argue actually aren't, they're allying with Silicon Valley. They're allying with billionaires. They're allying with neoconservative Republicans like Tom Cotton. I mean, that, that, that cynical argument can easily go the other way. So I, I just think it's, it's barely worth engaging with. But I think it, this gets to a deeper issue. And that deeper issue is that the reality is that within U.S. politics, and when I say politics, I mean in a kind of very limited electoral politics framework, kind of these mainstream political figures, that we've seen this kind of consolidation around an idea that you have to pick, like, you have to pick a side, right? There's just, there's a side, and it's very clear cut, and you have to be on that correct side, or you're going to be disciplined. And, and this issue of speech has become this kind of dogmatic issue where if you problematize the way it's framed, then they say they paint you as a useful idiot of the right. But you even see that among 
the most progressive elements in kind of quotes of the Democratic Party, people like the squad and AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who are calling for restrictions on speech and censorship of social media. And it's never interrogated, like, what makes that the correct progressive position? Because, again, not only are they allying with these conservative forces, but they're effectively arguing giving more power to corporations. That's not a progressive view. Corporations should be seen, I think, pretty widely as enemies of working people, of average people. Why should we give corporations more leeway to control what we say? I mean, that, that's not a progressive view. And then, and then finally, getting back to what you just pointed out about Obama. I mean, this, this is incredible and this bears a little more interrogation because it really shows the direction that, that the Democratic Party and the kind of enlightened, and I say this sarcastically, the kind of enlightened neoliberal center of politics, you know, the, the trying to unify the, the more so-called moderate neoconservative Republicans, people like Lindsey Graham, who just gave a fist bump on this, the Senate floor to Kamala Harris, you know, of course, the Democratic vice president, there is this increasing bipartisan consensus that, that against free speech and freedom of press. And Obama just exemplified this in this interview that he just did, in, that you pointed out, in which he said that the internet is now the biggest so-called threat to democracy. And in this, I'm going to read an exact quote. This is from Obama. The First Amendment doesn't require private companies to provide a platform for any view that is out there. At the end of the day, we're going to have to find a combination of government regulations and corporate practices that address this because it's going to get worse. Now, in the piece, he's, he frames it around so-called national security and this boogeyman of foreign disinformation and Russia is manipulating our voters. And I mean, that's clearly a cynical, ridiculous talking point that's used to justify the censorship. And I talked about this, the Cold War and all that at the beginning, but I think we should problematize this in a few ways. One, I already addressed this issue that these companies are supposedly private, so it's not violating the First Amendment. They're clearly not private. They have a very deep relationship with the government. So it is a violation of the First Amendment and their public utilities. So it's violating freedom of speech. But then there's the other part of the argument he makes, which is very interesting. And he says, there's gonna to have to be a combination of government regulation and corporate practice. But what he really means is that corporate practice is that the US government makes these guidelines and corporations, they abide by those guidelines. And we've seen that more and more, especially with the FBI. We published an article at the Gray Zone about how the FBI forced Facebook and other social media platforms to, to delete the accounts of the accounts related to a website called the American Herald Tribune. This was an alternative media website that was very critical of U.S. foreign policy and kind of left-leaning, but also kind of libertarian in some ways as well. And the U.S. government intelligence agencies claimed without any evidence that this is an Iranian disinformation platform, even though there is no solid evidence of that. And even if it were true, it almost never talked about Iran. It was all about really domestic U.S. politics and foreign policy. And it was views that a lot of America, I mean, most of the writers pretty much were Americans and maybe some Europeans and, and they're people we actually know who they were. The idea that this is an Iranian disinformation op was just swallowed and chewed out by the corporate media uncritically. And then the FBI used that to force social media platforms to, to delete the accounts of an independent media website 
And that, that's going to get worse and worse. We saw it to this, done to this website called the Free, Thinking, Free Thought Project, which is a, a kind of right-leaning libertarian website. And we saw to other websites that were monitoring police brutality, more and more censorship. So what, what Obama is really calling for here is pretty explicitly government censorship, but under the guise of doing it through a private company, which makes it seem like it's actually not violating the First Amendment. And, and then finally, the last point I'll make here before I hand it back to you is that when Obama is talking about important forms of government regulations to protect people's security, you know, I said earlier, I acknowledge that, look, clearly this is not a black and white issue. And there are cases, I would say rare cases, but there are a few cases in which you can kind of understand some restrictions on some of these publications and censorship. And I would say that that's, those are in very concrete cases. I'll give an example. If someone posts the private address of someone and like calls for violence or whatever, like that, that's very clear. They say like, like go kill this person, go attack this person at this address. That's very, very clearly a case of threatening someone, threatening bodily harm. I think those are very clear cut cases where you can maybe see a justification for censorship of that. But that is very, very different from the examples that these politicians are talking about now. And it, Twitter used to have that, that, that policy, but under so much US government pressure, especially in the Trump era, they totally abandoned it. And, and, and we're getting to the point where it's just, it's totally unreasonable. I think that if we're going to have any censorship at all of these platforms, there need to be very concrete examples that are presented and they need to meet very specific criteria pertaining to violence. And it's just gotten way, way out of those boundaries to, to such a degree now that, that it's just, from, in my opinion, it's just totally laughable. Well, yeah, I mean, I think if anything actually could resolve the serious issues that uh, are caused by the internet, which are, I think, the, you know, the, the organizing of, of very violent groups and people being in bubbles, it would be, I'd say, breaking up monopolies, pushing back against algorithms that try to influence people that are benefit uh, the social media sites. Uh, uh, I, I mean, breaking up these monopolies and a for-profit influence, I, I think, if anything, would solve most of the problems. And I think it's it's very telling that for all the talk of how dangerous these outlets are, the people in power are never actually advocating for the things that could solve these problems uh, and could allow for more uh, open exchange and, and less isolation. Uh, I think we're seeing a lot of, at least I've been seeing a lot of talk from independent journalists, independent news outlets, trying to boost one another, sort of trying to unite, trying to um, snowball as, as much as possible because of how clearly unbalanced media is in favor of what benefits uh, those in power and just those who have established themselves as uh successful, I don't know, pundits or um, anchors. And I think a lot of the discussions, I, I think that's important. I think we do need to boost independent outlets, but a lot of discussions lack, I think, ambition. Uh, it, and I think Bernie Sanders, uh, I, I always say, proposed, I, I think, a, a pretty good 
idea of, of how to basically uh, break up media monopolies so you don't have five companies controlling all the channels. And that didn't seem to catch on. Uh, and nowhere near as much as uh, policies like Medicare for All, Green New Deal. And uh, I'm curious, one, if you think those types of policies could maybe help this situation, feel free to agree or disagree. And then also how you think we could maybe implement uh, more of a movement to not just boost the role of independent media, but actually break up some of the power of more established, more U.S. government-supported media. Yeah, that that's a really good point. And I agree that this issue isn't talked about enough, breaking up these big corporate media monopolies and, and not just social media, but also the news media. I mean, five corporations control over 90% of the news media. So these all need to be broken up. And this needs to be an issue. It's also an issue that is not even necessarily like some leftist issue. There's there's a lot of people who are not that left wing who would agree with this. It's It's just against oligarchical oligarchical control of our society that that makes the u.s so undemocratic in, in so many ways and i don't know too many of the details around bernie's proposal but i think that there need to be more and more proposals of ways to break up these big tech monopolies and one way as you said of getting around these issues of censorship issues of also people endangering others, trolls and, and violence and all these things is having a, a larger diversity of social media platforms. Facebook and Google, and to a lesser extent, Twitter, which is still not that, that wide, but Facebook and Google control so much of people's everyday life. So let's talk about YouTube, Gmail, WhatsApp for people who use the, in the US it's not as popular, but around the world there are billions, there are literally more than 2 billion people who use WhatsApp on a regular basis. And then WhatsApp is owned by Facebook. YouTube is of course owned by Google. And then Facebook also owns Instagram. So these two companies control so much of people's access to information, their communication with their friends and loved ones, because it's not even just accessing information. It's also just talking to your friends, talking to your parents, talking to your siblings. It happens through all of these platforms that are controlled by a few companies. And, and by the way, I should mention for the, for the element of people who are not even American, these are U.S. companies that have such a huge chokehold on the international market controlling billions of people's access to information, access to the communications with their loved ones. So that, that only, not, only, not only does that pose a major problem in terms of oligarchy and anti-democratic issues for Americans, but for the 95% of people outside of the United States, that there, there are so many problems with how their information is filtered in a way that benefits the U.S. government and the U.S. national security state in propaganda that goes against the governments of people in other countries. So I, I agree 100%. Break them all up. That, that should be a much bigger issue than it is today. Mm -hmm. I think we basically touched on everything that I was really interested in touching on. But um, I guess one question or topic uh, before wrapping up is that I, I myself am from sort of a generation that was children when Bush was president, particularly young when Obama was president. I mean, I mean, Trump is really the first president. And of course, because there's this idea that he's in the, in the media, that he's such a 
unique threat to America, that we've never had anyone like him. Uh, I think for a lot of people new to, new to politics, there's a, a misunderstanding of what Biden may be. Uh, and and this, we've, I think we've already sort of covered what Biden may be, but uh, I think if you had to sort of make a prediction, sort of one of what the next four years might look like, but more importantly, where people should be looking the next four years, people who don't necessarily uh, have as much experience paying attention and witnessing uh, the type of policies of uh, a Biden presidency, where are some good places to start sort of um, some good things to start looking out for to catch these problems before they get uh, harder to uh, challenge? Yeah, I mean, I'll say for especially liberals who think that Trump was just some evil boogeyman who had no precedent in U.S. history, totally ignoring all of the horrors under the Bush administration, which I would argue were actually much more authoritarian the, the policies passed under Bush with the Patriot Act and the crackdowns on civil liberties and, and all of that. I mean, not to say that Trump is in any way good, he certainly isn't, but it's incredible to see the rehabilitation by these resistance Democrats, these neoliberal Democrats of even Bush himself, who oversaw policies much more aggressive than Trump. I think now that that illusion is just going to be so blatant under a Biden administration because my real worry as an independent journalist is it, we're going to see a further escalation. Not only it's bad enough that the, these, the censorship we're talking about, these policies that already exist on social media and other platforms, and not even, you know, I was talking about social media. There's also, there's also shadow banning on Google. There is dropping results on Google. So for instance, we have many examples of reports released that, not only left-wing and progressive and anti-war websites, but also some right-wing and some libertarian websites are intentionally pushed down in the algorithm. Even So there's something called search engine optimization, SEO, which, which determines when your website will appear in search results on Google and other search engines. We know that Google has a blacklist of media outlets, which are all independent media outlets that challenge the kind of hegemony, the chokehold on information posed by these five big corporations that control the mainstream media. Google has this blacklist of these websites that, that's hurting people's access to information. So that's also part of this, this crackdown. But the point is that all of these policies that already exist are bad enough, but I think we're going to see an, an even further escalation under the Biden administration and a continuation of many of these authoritarian policies we saw under Bush, Obama, and Trump. So I, I really think that as bad as Trump was in so many ways, Biden is just gonna continue so many of these same policies and Democrats are not going to be able to pretend anymore like Trump was some uniquely evil figure. And, and unfortunately, the Democratic Party leadership has repeatedly shown that it ne it's never going to engage in self-criticism. So they'll blame something else. They'll blame another boogeyman. But I think more and more Americans, especially independent-minded people, are going to recognize that the Democratic Party is not some great alternative to the Republican Party that supposedly defends 
freedoms and liberties in a way Republicans don't. And in fact, both of these parties are very much committed to taking away more and more of our, the, the, the very few freedoms and the very few liberties that Americans actually have. Mm-hmm. Well, I really appreciate having the time to talk to you about this and get sort of get a head start on hopefully pointing people to this. Ben Norton, thank you for coming on News Dive. And for anyone interested, where can people follow your work? Yeah, I am the assistant editor of the investigative journalism website, The Gray Zone, and that's gray with an A. So you can go to thegrayzone.com. The editor-in-chief is my colleague, Max Blumenthal, and he and I also have a podcast called Moderate Rebels. You can find that at moderaterebels.com. And then if you just you know look me up on social media, I tweet way too much. So hopefully I'll be on there. Hopefully I won't be censored, but you can find me at Benjamin Norton. And I just want to thank you for not only having me on, but also talking about this important issue because, like I said, under the Biden administration, I think this is going to become an even worse problem. And I really think that those of us who are independent journalists and who care about not just freedom of the speech in in the broad sense, but very specifically freedom of the press, which is a very unique, important freedom that we need to talk about more and more. I I thank you for covering that. And hopefully we can, you know, raise more concerns about this publicly. Absolutely. That was a News Dive interview with Ben Norton. If you liked what you heard, please do share and follow News Dive with everyone you know. We are on social media, Twitter and Instagram. Our handles are at News Dive Radio for both platforms. You can also find more episodes covering a range of topics under the theme of corporate news being bad and independent news being good can find that podcast by looking up anchor.fm slash newsdive or going to the links in our social media bios or by searching newsdive on any platform you use to listen to podcasts, subscribe, keep up with the episodes, tell other people about them. We want to do as much as we possibly can to boost the role of independent journalism, so any followers and support is greatly appreciated and part of that mission.